Part 1, Chapter 5 of The Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sawyer Ruiz. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borum. Camouflage. New occasion teach new duties and new dictions. The war has given us a new word and a very interesting one. Camouflage has become commonplace. In its original French setting, it simply means to be concealed in smoke. I fancy I detect in it a hint that very noisome things may be made to serve very noble ends. The big battleships certainly thought so. When harassed by the fatal but elusive submarines, the huge treadnoughts hid themselves behind thick screens of impenetrable smoke and were saved by camouflage. Having once been applied to tactics of the kind, the vivid expression was soon used to connotate a multitude of similar maneuvers. Guns cunningly concealed amidst waving forestry, men smothered with the wisps of hay, or fronds of fern or twig of trees, ships painted with fantastic designs calculated to conceal their true identity. All this has come to be known as camouflage. Ian Hay quotes Major Wagstaff as saying that you can now disguise anything as anything. For instance, you can make up a battery of six-inch guns to look like a flock of sheep and herd them into action browsing. Or you can dispatch a scouting party across no man's land dressed up as pillar boxes so that a deluded enemy, instead of opening fire with machine gun, will merely post letters in them, valuable letters, containing military secrets. This surely is the perfection of camouflage. If, however, the word is new to us, the thing itself is as old as the hills. Had not Sir Walter Scott told us how, at Flodden, the Scottish army set fire to its tents and charged the English under the cover of smoke? Moreover, camouflage is the watchword of the wilds. In his Tropical Africa, Henry Drummond does not use the word, but he has a chapter about it all the same. Nature, he says, is one vast system of imposture. Carlyle, in his blackest visions of shams and humbugs among humankind, never saw anything so finished in hypocrisy as the naturalist finds in every tropical forest. There are to be seen creatures, not singly, but in tens of thousands, whose very appearance, down to the minute spot and wrinkle, is an affront to truth, whose every attitude is a pose for a purpose, and whose whole life is a sustained lie. Before these masterpieces of deception, the most ingenious of human impositions are vulgar and transparent. Fraud is not only the great rule of life in tropical forest, but the one condition of it. And then he proceeds to give examples. One day, he found a bit of a dried grass lying on his shoulder. The natives cried out in alarm and pointed to it. Drummond could not understand their excitement. He picked up the grass and examined it. They cried out that it was Shorimbo. It was alive. He was incredulous, but they soon proved to him that their statement was true. It was an insect practicing camouflage. Half a dozen pages farther on, the professor gives a photograph of a leaf insect. To look at the picture, you could declare that it was a leaf, pure and simple. The shape is the shape of a leaf. There is a stem, sturdy at the base, and tapering away towards the point. There are fibers running out from the main stem towards the rough edges. In every minutest particular, the thing is a precise replica of the leaves around it. But again, it is an insect, and an insect practicing camouflage. And then the narrative takes an almost tragic turn. One of the most beautiful and ornate of all the tropical reptiles, and one of the most deadly, is the puff adder. It is essentially a forest animal, its true habitat being among the fallen leaves in the deep shade of the trees by the banks of streams. 
now in such a position at a distance of a foot or two its appearance so exactly resembles the floor's bed as to be almost indistinguishable from it i was once just throwing myself down under a tree to rest when stopping to clear the spot i noticed a particular pattern among the leaves i started back in horror to find a puff adder of the largest size its thick back only visible and its fangs within a few inches of my face as i stooped it was lying concealed amongst fallen leaves so like itself that but for exceptional caution which in african travel becomes a habit i should certainly have sat down upon it and to sit down upon a puff adder is to sit down for the last time the loathsome brute was practising a camouflage which almost deprived the world of one of the most gracious and inspiring ministers of the nineteenth century but we need not have gone to central africa camouflage is everywhere i find it in my bible david resorted to camouflage on a very famous occasion he was a monarch and he tried to pass himself off as a maniac he feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard david livingstone's great-grandfather gavin hunter was once thrown into hamilton jail for a technical offence which in point of fact was rather to his credit than otherwise but just at that time all prisoners were being shipped off to the wars or to the plantations poor gavin was in great trouble he thought of his wife and his three little children who would starve if he were sent overseas in his distress he turned to his bible and chanced to light upon this very passage concerning david he resolved to adopt a similar ruse when the sergeant visited his cell he was astounded then pitying poor gavin he interrupted his ravings by asking a question tell me good man he said are you really out of your mind i'll befriend you gavin detected a note of sympathy in his voice and told the whole story the sergeant reported the affair to the officer in charge of the jail who visited gavin in person take that good man he said giving him some silver and gangway home to your wife and to your weans david livingstone's mother told her distinguished son the story of successful camouflage on her deathbed in the course of the explorer's visit to scotland in eighteen sixty four ay she said smiling and many a prayer went up from our home for that sergeant for my grandfather was an unco godly man he never had so much money in his life before a curious story of deliverance and enrichment by the way of camouflage i confess to a little surprise that professor drummond should charge the leaf insect the puff adder and all other artists of the wild with hypocrisy are they really hypocritical we must distinguish between things that differ and there is all the difference in the world between camouflage and hypocrisy hypocrisy is the attempt of a mean thing to pass itself off as a mighty thing camouflage is the attempt of a mighty thing to pass itself off as a mean thing if a cloud of smoke tries to pass itself off as a battleship that is hypocrisy but if a battleship tries to pass itself off as a cloud of smoke that is camouflage if a fallen tree tries to pass itself off as a big gun that is hypocrisy but if a big gun tries to pass itself off as a fallen tree that is camouflage aesop has a fable entitled the ass in the lion's skin now an ass in a lion's skin is not practising camouflage he is playing the hypocrite that is all but if on the other hand the lion were to don the skin of an ass he would be resorting to camouflage if a scarecrow ever scared a crow and there is no record of such a wild improbability he scared him by his downright hypocrisy but if in order to watch a house in which a burglar is expected a detective posts himself in the garden in the guise of a scarecrow that detective is practising the arts of camouflage 
there is clearly an essential difference between an old broom and a suit of clothes masquerading as a man and a man pretending to be an old broom in a suit of clothes the one is humbug the other is a tactician the most pathetic instance known to me of the use of camouflage occurs in ian mclaren's drumhue's love story all the glen knew drumhue as a man of the closed fist mean hard niggardly he drove every bargain to the uttermost farthing at last he grew to be old he was nearly eighty he looked around and discovered that all his comrades of his earlier days and all the friends of his lustier years had dropped into their graves all but one that one was william mcclure the doctor of drummachie and then a strange desire awoke in the soul of drumshue he felt that before he too went away of the flesh he should like to open his heart to the doctor and tell him the secret that had been buried in his breast for years one cruel winter's day the doctor almost frozen came riding on jess his brave little pony up the glen fighting his way through deep snow drifts drumshue called him in sat him by the fireside and entertained him royally then the two old men sat looking into the dying embers seeing visions of the old days of awed laying sin the hour had come drumshue unlocked his lips and told his tale as a youth he loved margaret the sweetest girl in all of the glen he had counted it heaven to look on her winsome face to listen to her soft rich voice to watch her gentle ways once in a cornfield her soft hand had touched his and the thrill of that exquisite moment had been with him all down the years once she dropped a flower and he had treasured it even to gray hairs but he had never found the courage to declare his love and one summer evening she met him by chance at the still across the fields and told him that she was going to be married poor drumshue clung to the still dazed for hours like a man suddenly bereft of everything margaret married and everything went ill with her and then drumshue made his brave resolve he scraped and pinched and saved and sent every penny to her through a firm of solicitors who were instructed to say that it came from a relative in america but for this margaret would have been turned out of the house and home she could never pay the doctor's bills she could have never sent her boys to college drumshue cried the doctor at last drumshue you're the most accomplished leer that's ever been born in drumtuchie and the best man i ever saw now here is the question was drumshue a hypocrite how could he be a hypocrite and yet be the best man the old doctor had ever seen he was an expert in camouflage that was all but it was a mistake drumshue came to feel that it was a mistake margaret the old old woman now discovered the deception at last she came to drumshue and blessed him through her tears he took her hand and made as though he would have raised it to his lips but as he bent she kissed him on the forehead this she said for your great and faithful love yes it was a mistake drumshue felt that he would have been happier and better if he had contrived to maintain his noble and unselfish ministry to margaret without gaining for himself so odious a reputation in the glen it was a poignant anguish to him that all his old schoolfellows and companions had gone down to their grave despising him his camouflage was a mistake camouflage is often a mistake i shall never forget the night on which i said farewell to mosgley the manse our home through twelve long happy years was dismantled the rooms were almost empty the walls and floors were bare farewell meeting was held it was late when i reached home to sleep for the last time under the old roof just as i was turning in to the gate a figure emerged from the hedge it was a woman a young woman who through all my ministry had regularly attended the services of the church she was weeping bitterly i led her into the empty manse she sat upon one of the packing cases and i upon another oh i've been wicked 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 she cried i've come to church and gone out again and i've always pretended that i did not care 
and when you spoke to me I told you that I did not wish to be a Christian or to take any steps towards a holier life, and all the while my heart has been aching, almost breaking. When communion nights came, and I saw other women remain to partake of it, I felt that I would give the light of my eyes to be able to sit at that table with them. But I went out into the dark and laughed it off. And when, on other occasions, I saw other women helping in the work, I felt that I would give all I possessed to be helping too. But I went through with it and always said I did not care. It was a great piece of camouflage, and bitterly did she repent it. We kneeled together on the bare boards, and whilst I prayed, her heart uttered itself in sobs of deep contrition. And so I said farewell to my old home and my old church, and she said farewell to her long, long camouflage. I like to think of that closing episode of my first ministry, and I delight in knowing that, whilst I have been laboring on other shores, she has remained among the most devoted and consistent members of the Mosul Church. End of Part 1, Chapter 5 Recording by Sawyer Ruiz